Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. Good evening, Jim. Good evening, David. Do I seem like I'm disgruntled? You seem like you're very disgruntled. I'm I'm a disgruntled individual this evening. Oh, I'm not wearing my shirt. You're wearing your shirt. Yeah, I wore mine tonight. This is a prototype. They're coming. Practical PR1 Waza. Um the Waza. You know, the Waza version is coming. Yeah. That well, so <laughs> I ordered I ordered mine and the problem is like this all looks great, right? But on the back, yep. it has all of our URLs and our and our logo and all the URLs in our dark text to get on a dark shirt, so you can't see them, even though yep. their shirt sample is way lighter than this. Um, yep. And I don't particularly like the sizing over there. I thought it was not yep. generous at all. <laughs> um, yep. So and they shrunk really bad. So that's something to keep in mind if you're going to order from the new store when it when it shows up. Um, yeah. That's going to happen pretty soon. I just got to get an hour or two to sit down and finish up the designs. And then they'll be, you know, posted, and I'll put the, uh, I'll change the URL everywhere. Um, excuse me for the hiccup. Um, so day anything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Um, I was explaining <laughs> to my lighting. I was supposed to start the show at eight thirty. It's now nine fifteen. Um, <laughs> I have for the last forty five minutes been fixing a toilet seat lid um, <laughs> because I knocked a closet door over into my bathroom and the closet door fell on the toilet seat lid and broke it in half. So Jim is apparently fixing his lighting. Trying. This is, it, it, this is going to be fun. The light is above my head, so it's No, it's fine. There's nothing you could do. You just got to turn down the, uh, you got to turn down the, uh, in post I can fix it. I made it look pretty good last week, so I think we're cool. Okay. Um, so, I'm going to I'm 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 going on a road trip in the middle of COVID. You and me fun. both. It's going to be fun. A very long road trip. Uh, I you're going to North Carolina or someplace. Oh, South Carolina. <coughs> yeah, I'm going down to. Uh, I'm I'm not going nearly the distance, bless you, that you are. Thank you. I'm doing about a six and a half hour drive. You're doing like a two day drive. Yeah, uh, fifty six hours round trip. Uh, 56 okay. hours behind the wheel round trip. I will be driving with my wife to Las Vegas to pick up our eldest. Um, it is going to be an adventure to do this during COVID-19 with, you know, potential travel closures and all that kind of stuff. It's a long history as to why this is happening, but basically this last weekend has just been obliterated with projects that we need to finish up before we leave and uh, making sure that we have all of our I's dotted and T's crossed before we walk out of the house on Tuesday, uh, which this episode will air on Wednesday. So I'm on the road. You'll probably see Facebook group postings about me being on the road. And it'll be, uh, you know, at that point, this will not no longer be a topic, right? So I'm trying to figure out what to take with me. Um, Nintendo Switch. Might be able to see. Yeah, I was thinking about that. But you guys (laughs) might be able to see back here, there's a little bitty thing underneath the Kemper profiler. it's not a stage, it's the remote box. And that is the new Gator bag from Kemper. 
not from Kemper, but for the Kemper. Um, I fi- it finally came in. So I have that now, and I'm debating on whether to take the Kemper and just a pair of headphones, just to play in the play in the hotel. That's like, what I would do. I'm taking room. a small amp and a pair of headphones. But I honestly could just get by with just like the keys and the gig bag. I'm bringing my Cube 40, my little rolling cube, and uh, now what's what's interesting is too bad it's not here yet, but my um uh my bark is uh being processed for ship yeah that could take already what's that that could take weeks i'm I'm kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding no it could it could take four to six weeks but it at least i know that it's four to six weeks not four to six months (laughs) so um i hope you get it soon it'll be cool i'm actually really i'm really interested to hear what your thoughts on it are I'm also interested yeah. to see if they really do bump the price to 400 bucks. I really don't think they will. Um, I could see it going. I, I don't know. See, it's it's. We've talked about this before. It's in the realm of the um, Yamaha THR. Yeah, and being in the THR series and the THR tens, um, it would be up against. Uh, that that's in the 400 dollar range. So. Well, I think they're they're what three fifty to start, and I think the well, we're wireless. It's four hundred, right? But the Spark isn't wireless, is it? Yeah. Well, it's not wireless, is it? It doesn't have okay the the okay the only one that has wireless, like you can use a a built in type wireless unit, is the um is the Katana or well, what do they call it there? There's a wireless, wireless, th- there's, a wireless th- there's a wireless THR. No, it's Bluetooth. Let me check that because I'm pretty sure. No, I think there's a wireless THR as well. Um, yeah, but you have to buy the, line, the. It uses the Line Six relay, G10, whatever. Yeah, you have to buy that separately, if I remember. Uh, I thought they had a package with it. I'm not. I'm uh, not positive on that, but I think the package is 400, and I think the amp yeah, starts me... at 350. And then, of course, there's a THR five. Which is which is I think what they're gunning for. Um, so the THR, I'm going to the expensive one. So the thirty watt THR um, is five hundred dollars. The three hundred dollar version is not wireless. Yeah, but that's not the one that's competing with the Spark. Oh wait, let me see. Okay, four forty nine. Here we go. Four forty nine is wireless. Yeah, so there is a wireless version, but what I'm saying is the, it, the Yamaha THR ten two two by three inch twenty watt modeling combo amp is only three hundred bucks. Okay, it's it's you're right. It's it's um compatible with the Line Six, but you do you do have to buy the Line Six. Yeah, so or any transmitter. Right, right. So. And I, and I highly doubt that people are going to be splurging an extra 150 bucks and then still have to go buy the transmit or the, the which still puts that that puts it at six hundred dollars with the transfer. Yeah, that's kind so of so in all reality, out the box, it's the same that it's six one half thousand. I would I would be unsurprised to see them be able to sell it at stores for three fifty. The yeah. spark. No, I mean it'll sell at four hundred. I just don't think it'll sell as well. No. No, I would think 350 would be more than where you're trying to get. Yeah, that's. But I could, I, th- I could be wrong. So, 
I, I'm just curious as to what's going to happen with it. It'll be interesting. Um, I'm, I'm actually interested. I might, I might pick one up when they're in stores. Like I might, I, it just depends. I was telling my wife, you know, for situations like this, a battery powered amp would be really nice. Um, or even just one that has like a little bitty adapter and it's a tiny amp and those things are tiny. So, I mean, yeah. it wouldn't be much. So like my Kemper bag is huge. It's, you know, this wide and this tall and it's like, right. Do I want to put that and then attempt to throw boxes on top of it, you know, for, for traveling and, and all that. Right. Not particularly. And, I, and <laughs> the Roland is, you know, the Roland cube that I have, I have the 40 watt. That's a little bit bigger. So I was thinking that hopefully the spark is in, in the same ballpark uh, quality and uh, sound wise as the, as the Yamaha. I, I have to imagine the spark is going to be as good, if not better than the THR. That is yeah. what they do. Um, right. I would think that that will obliterate your Roland cube as well. Uh, I was oh. never a fan of those amps originally. I know there are some people that are like, oh, yeah, no, it's the best practice amp ever. Look, it's a practice amp. Best practice amp is yeah. like saying, who this is the best toilet paper ever. Right. It might be really good at what it does, which no one really wants to talk about anyway. So, um, I, well, yeah, and, I, and I'm not going to sit here and say that the Roland Cube is the best practice amp ever. Um, I, I know you, Jim. You're, you're wise. It's a practice amp. Huh? I know you, Jim. You're wise. Yeah. That maybe it's, not it's wise as in like a wise man, but wise to, as in that may not be the best practice. <laughs> oh, no. I, I, I wouldn't even put it up there in a the top five. But the truth is I got it for a smoking deal, so to speak. So smoking. I got it used and I got it pretty much. I mean, it's like brand new. I felt bad. The guy, the guy selling it to me, takes it out of the back of the of his car, and he goes, "Yeah, my dad just passed away, and I was selling off, you know, some of his guitar stuff." And I'm like, "Oh man, I'm so sorry." You know, I'm, I'm like, uh, "I'm taking this dead guy's you know, You mind if I take the, uh, you know?" You have any strange spirits visiting you, Jim? Yeah, no, no. I know that was, the was joke last time too, but uh... I just thought it was funny. I'm surprised that, uh, you've kept that amp. I really am because I know you've like gone through a bunch of other amps. You had a you had a katana and that's been gone. Yeah, I made a decision um, that there are certain things I'm not selling, and that these are things I'm not selling. That's something I'm not selling. My how many katanas did you all know? Four. 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 I think it was four. It could have been five. Honestly, it could have been five. I I know for a fact it was. I had a fifty. I wasn't pleased with the fifty. I went to the hundred. I think I got rid of it. Got it again. Got rid of it. Got it again. Um, I keep thinking, you know how you, when you don't have something you had, it's like, was there something I really liked about it? And then you get it and you go, no, there wasn't. <laughs> kind of stuck with it. And so I've just, I've just decided to myself that, not that I think that the Katana is a bad practice amp in any way, shape, or form. You and I both know it's a decent practice amp. Yeah. Um, it is for what it does. And for, if you've got to practice, um, like go to the band and it's, practice. It's the one I'll rehearsal. Go. It's, it's the one practice amp that can become a rehearsal amp or a live amp. Right. Um, yeah. You could in, literally, in yeah. And you could do the, the open mic thing. With it. There's absolutely no reason you couldn't do that. Um, so. unless you have a camper and then. That is, that's, that's and speaking of open mics, I did an open mic this week. Yeah. How'd that go? It was good. So it was out, just to let people know it was outdoors. Um, so there's no, you know, thing. And everybody has distance. We have a decent side stage. So we, six feet is not a problem. 
Um, and uh, I enjoyed it. Did three songs. I only did three songs. I was like, ah, three songs. Um, and I plugged into another guy's amp. I didn't even bother. I brought my Fender, but I didn't need to bring to use it. Um, but I do kind of want to do that so I can get my, you know, get my sound down for the staging. But um, and I've got a hole right here. Hopefully, I'm going to fill in a couple of weeks with something I showed you. I reached out to the guy. So, um, victory. Yep. Yeah. Huh? Victory Vic will be mine. Victory. Um, Vic. Three. Yes. Victory. Victory will be mine. <laughs> so hopefully, um, hopefully, victory will yeah. be mine. Um, Are you German now? Uh, David, David understands why we're, we're stressing that letter and has got nothing to do with, uh, with Germany. Um, or a German accent, which I would be terrible at. <laughs> every time I try to do a German accent, every time I try to do anybody's accent, I wound up so sounding Brog or, or uh, Scottish. <laughs> it's just, so I'm it's terrible it's not too, something so. I try to do. <laughs> I'm terrible. Um, so uh, yeah, go Kanye. But anyway, oh my um, gosh, yeah, that was the topic for tonight. We're we're gonna get there. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm voting Kanye. I really am. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, um, <laughs> I figure I figure why not throw my vote over there? At least I'm it's running, Jim. You're gonna vote says, for him over me. I'm running. I'm a write-in candidate too. <laughs> Are you old enough? Why wouldn't I be? You have to be 35 or 37. I'm 35. Oh, shut up. <laughs> See, this guy's old enough to be my kid, and I just realized now that I am old enough to... Yeah, that, as a matter of fact, yeah. Oh, boy, this is bad. Anyway, so... <laughs> in other news... <laughs> this really is bad. I should have been running for president for the last 20-something years. Um, so... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, actually... Uh, um, I enjoyed the open mic. I enjoyed the, the, you know, the, um, people, you know, being able to go out there and sealing weird Maryland. Those who have used, who saw the picture I had posted last year from the place. will know what I'm talking about, Marilyn Monroe and the, the horrible wax sculpture that they had. I took my son, um, and we, we had a fun, went to the beach over the weekend, by the way, um, Fourth of July, spent it on um, Damn Neck Beach. If you go to my web, my uh, Facebook page, you'll see that not only was I socially distant, I don't think you could get much more socially distant. Um, about eight miles between me and the, <laughs> the people that are in the background. Um, and uh, there were people on the beach, they were fishing, but uh, you just, you stayed away from each other. Um, so it's not like Florida. No, it's, it's so Damn Neck is a, is a Navy base. Um, so you have to have a CAC or, or a military ID of some kind to go on base. Um, and uh, I have re my retired base and, and my my contractor's badge, so I was able to get on. And my son and I went over to the beach. Um, police were very good and very nice to people. Um, I thought very cordial as far as telling them, cannot just sit, you cannot sunbathe, you're not allowed, um, at least not on the military base. Um, even if you are with the same group, you can stay together. They even asked me, they said, do you have anybody else coming? I said, nope, because they were, they were about to tell me you could only have a group of so many, if, even if you were walking. So we walked up and down the beach. We walked about two miles in the, in the sand. Um, got a couple of pictures, you know. Um, and then uh, 
went over the dune, went to a friend's house. Again, we were very uh, uh, respectful of each other. Um, we're only wearing the house for a few seconds. I wore a mask while I took some pictures of because they wanted to show me their new grandchild. Um, and that was that was nice. Um, and uh, and a new puppy. So I'm getting a puppy. <laughs> that's that's another thing. If you go to my Facebook page, you'll see a picture. So it looks like I'm getting a pug in September, or October. Good dog. Um, yeah, cute little dog. Smart, cute, smart as a whip, though. Yes, he is so smart and so well behaved. I was like, yep, that's what I want. I want one of these. So um, the breeder, same parents um, as his. And then the rest of the day, we sat outside. We're properly distanced, by the way, everybody. Um, just because I, I'm a little bit snarky with people, I still respect everybody. Um, I'm snarky on Facebook, but I'm, I'm very respectful. Um, so, uh, we, we stayed distant. I, um, then, uh, we, my son and I came and we changed our clothes cause it was pretty sweaty after being out in the sun and heat all day. We went back out to another friend's house again, an outdoor cookout, stayed outside, stayed distant, especially give, considering that they have smaller children. Um, it was a friend of mine and her, uh, her daughter and uh, uh, son-in-law. Um, and uh, I'm good flying friends with all of them. Her son was there. Uh, we hung out and we sat in the front again, staying distant. Um, I, I stress that because I don't, I want people to understand not, not, oh, look at Jimmy. So, you know, socially responsible. I'm just saying that I'm not irresponsible and I, I respect, you know, I respect my friends and I respect even strangers, obviously. Um, so we did that, uh, went to the gym, uh, pumped some weights. Um, I'm starting to lose weight now, which is good. Uh, finally, after a month, <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very, at my age, it's very hard. It, you know, those commercials where they go, yeah, I lost weight. I lost 10 pounds in 10 days. Yeah, It's hard for your body to like make the switch. Yeah. And, and especially when I've spent so much time being a lazy slob. Um, so, and eating crap. That's probably the biggest part is eating crap. Uh, but anyway, um, went to the gym. The way that we go to the gym, we stay socially distanced inside the gym, just in case you're wondering. You wipe the, the machines before you get on. You wipe the machines after you get off. And you stay um, well above. I mean, we are well above six feet between each other. There's probably 10 or 12 feet between yeah, the person. Yeah, there are many people going to the gym right now. <laughs> No, no, there's not. You're right. And uh, I mean, the people that do are respectful. You have to wear a mask going in. You have to wear your mask going out, which is sweaty and yucky. But uh, I have a I have a clean mask and a sweaty and yucky mask for the way out. Um, uh, I always bring a towel anyway. It was always my that that's the thing, though, about Planet Fitness is really it's not a change other than you have every other machine closed off. Yeah. So. um when you go inside, usually you would have like, you know, there's a big row of, of, uh, say treadmills, right? Big more tre row of treadmills or steppers or whatever. Um, every other one is shut down. They're just there. And there's a sign, you know, stay, stay distant, but they always had, um, hand cleaner. They always had, uh, uh, stuff to wipe the machines down. It's just now because they can't walk up to you and go, Hey, you didn't wash that machine. Go back there and wash that machine. Because believe me, there are still people who are lazy. It, it, 
and disgusting. And they don't wash. And disgusting. And, and they're gross. I mean, let's face it, folks, that the masks and stuff are your respect for others. You cannot make other people respect you. Um, anyway, or anyone else for that matter. Um, they go around, and they always did this before anyway, but now they're a little more... Um, say a little more digit, diligent, I want to say that they do it a little more often, or maybe it's just because I'm noticing it more. They go around and they wipe machines that nobody's using. Even the ones that are supposed to be unused, they're wiping down. So everybody's being responsible. Our numbers here are good. You know, everything's good. But I have to go to South Carolina, and I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit scared um, because South Carolina right now, I'm going to North Char Charleston for work. Um, I'm they moved my date to travel from Monday to Tuesday, but I'm still going this week. Um, and I, I am a little bit concerned because it's a hotbed. And now I, you know, I didn't want to command the the thing, but you're going to an area, is it? A, I'm going to more than it, one. You're going to Las Vegas. I'm going, going all over the place, man. Uh, I'm driving through Utah, which you know, Salt Lake had like an insane case count at one point. Um, and so the trip will take me through Iowa, Nebraska, um, Colorado, Utah, part of the very tip of Arizona and, um, into, uh, Nevada and Arizona and Nevada, both hotbeds, uh, Iowa on the, on the, uh, Illinois side is pretty bad. Nebraska is borderline in certain places. Um, so we're having to go out of our way to find places to stay that aren't, you know, like inundated right now. Um, but you know what? Like I, I, I told my wife, we're not getting out of the car except to go into the hotel, you know, or motel that we stay at. And other than that, like that's the only point of exposure we'll have. Right. Um, and if you're smart, you're washing yourself. Um, you're going to you're going to my, my take wife clean is going to sanitize the room before we go in and. She's already because she's she's all up on that. She, her cosmetology, believe it or not, prepares you for a pandemic. Basically, they, they yeah. teach all about sanitization. Um, and uh, so yeah, no, she her her sanitation background is going to be great on this. But you know, it's just you still get concerned. Like you come across the wrong person, you get broke down the side of the road. You know, and you got to deal with first responder. Yeah. You got to deal with you know. Um, we were with Petco yesterday. This is this is gonna be the end of our little COVID COVID moment here. Uh, we were in Petco the other day, and um, I saw a nurse in Petco. But this is what's gonna kill you. She didn't have a mask on. She's walking around, free to the world, having a good time in her scrubs. And I'm going, really? Like you of all people should be setting the example for everybody else. Like that's that's basically the way I was looking at it. Like yeah, no, I know you might you might have already had it or something, but you're supposed to be. Um, yeah, we still don't know who's asymptomatic. I mean, I could, I could be asymptomatic. We both I don't could, know. We both could be. No one really. You know, knows. we yeah. Anyone you see could be. Um, I look at it like this. I, I'm not. Okay, I. We've talked about this offline. I'm not a big fan of the masks. I'm not a big fan of a lot of the things that are going on. But then again, um, because I know how people are. They're scummy. They don't take at care the, of themselves. At the very or, minimum. I would use every bit of protection that I can that I that I'm afforded, and if it's socially it, acceptable to do that right now, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> right, and that and that's yeah, and that's what I was getting at. Respect other people because even if you're just 
even if you're just wearing the mask to respect their feelings, do it. You know, that's what I say. And I, and I, and I could be wrong. People, if you're, you know, please feel free to disagree with me. I respect your feelings, Jim. But I respect, yeah, I respect, I, yeah, I got mine over yeah. there. I mean, Perfect. we have multiples. We wash them. We got filters Gibson. that go in them. Yeah. Gibson, yeah, that figure, that figures, that figures right there. No, this is the mask. This is my, this is my, my, my mask does that. I do have one of these made into a mask. So, 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 all right. So here's what I thought was really cool for the 4th of July, right? So like in Illinois, we're kind of laxing down things a little bit because our yep. case counts have been pretty low. But yep. um, July 4th, I saw a lot of people on Facebook in the local music community who were actually doing shows from their house. Not like live stream shows, but they were live streaming, obviously. But they had like lawn chairs set up in front of their garage and they yeah. put their stuff out and they were playing patriotic music in front of their house. Or they were just yeah, playing tunes mine. for the neighbors, and they'd have the chairs socially distanced, and that was good time, you know. Like, yeah, a friend of mine in New York did the same thing. Um, so, if I'd had the facility, I probably would have considered it. Yeah, like I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna take my my stuff out, and I'll go play some great music, come out, hang out, and just like you know, celebrate Fourth together as a as a, a community. Um, we huh. did watch Hamilton, um, which I was really surprised. I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Um, I'm a history buff anyway, so to watch Hamilton and like, you know, kind of immerse myself in the in the colonial history again because I haven't really done a whole lot of you know reading on colonial history in probably ten years. Um, it was it was enlightening, and I think um, actually. Like I enjoyed the fact that it was a multicultural celebration of the nation's history, because I think there's a a big component, uh, obviously today, who believes that, you know, we should do it with complete historicity. But I think that that was more than just like here we're gonna make this history of Hamilton. It was more like this is a celebration of all things Hamilton and colonial, right? Like going from colonies to this to this person. So I think it's really good. If you got Disney Plus, check it out. Um, rap music may not be your thing, and there's a lot of rap oh, music yeah. in it. But I mean, there's some good vocal stuff in there too. Like I was wildly appreciative of some of the range um, in some of the tunes, and um, there's even some like Britpop in there, which was which was kind of funny when they had uh, King George doing doing Britpop, um, which I don't know that everybody natural uh, you know recognizes as that genre of music, but that's what it definitely sounded like. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, check it out if uh, you're interested. I thought it was great that Disney put that up a couple of years ago. I have Hamilton. I should check that out. Or I mean, Disney Plus, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, um, I just got finished watching, believe it or not, finishing The Mandalorian. I literally just finished it like last week or this week. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a good ending. Um, I'm looking forward to that. So, um, music-wise, so I saw something cool the other day. I saw somebody post a stereo Kemper, stereo output power amp Kemper. Really? Yes. Uh, and this is now a mod <laughs> from British Audio. So really? The, so the Kemper, like the one I own, the powered Kemper toaster, now has a mod. They can take the existing power amp and actually run the stereo main outs, the power amp, and then you can... Use that to, you know, run multiple cabinets. 
And obviously, I have the Tower of Power over here underneath the kitty blanket. Uh, the tower, yep. the tower of uh, the kitty blanket was a gift, and it is because it keeps the cats off. Oh. It's 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 a ironic gift. Um, I throw it over my amps and stuff to keep them from scratching up the um, uh, right the the uh, yeah. covers. But I could take the Kemper now if I get this mod and run both cabs and in stereo, so that it would be like you know circular. <clears throat> That's cool. Do the Leslie stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the Leslie like and it's great. So I'm like, when I saw it, I was, and, and when I realized it was a mod, because at first I was like, seriously, Kemper, are you going to do this to us? Like make a running change on the product and screw all the previous owners. And then HW responded because HW is actually in possession of the British audio modified stereo Kemper. He responded and he said, don't worry. And then a few posts down, he said, of course, this is a mod and it's available to anyone who wants it soon. Um, and I, he knew people were going to go nuts for that thing. Uh, but I basically posted directly after that and said, take my money. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's I, honestly that that is the only shortcoming I have with the Kemper uh, powered is that it doesn't it doesn't work like the line six powered devices did, which was, you know, stereo outs. Um, which I don't think I would have might it would cared about as much on them, but the modulation and stuff in the Kemper is pretty good, so it's going to be wild because I think everything in there is stereo anyway. So yeah, I can get my Univibe in stereo, which Univibes Ooh. are mono. Yeah, but yeah, so I'm I'm interested in that. Like that was exciting. Um, And there was some other stuff I wanted to talk about, too. Oh, uh, I have been so – somebody asked me um, – Michael Newman asked me, because we've been going back and forth. He said Stephen Slate Drums is on sale. Okay. Uh, if you're not familiar with Stephen Slate Drums, it's kind of like uh, Easy Drummer, if you're more familiar with that product, uh, or even Steinberg Groove Agent, which is an older one. Um, and then it has, like, a ton of patterns in it. And you can rearrange these patterns. And then, of course, it has features that actually can allow you to take a MIDI program drum track and humanize it. Um, and, Jim, I'm going to do a project with you. It's going to happen. And I'm going to record it when we do it because I, I think we might be able to cut some material out of it and turn it into part of a show segment. Um, so these programs, they exist so you can build your own backing tracks or you can, you know, basically write music without a band. I am a big uh easy drummer uh tune track guy and it's just because tune track makes it really easy to do it and i don't say it because it's easy drummer but like their approach to it fits my needs which is essentially hey i want this i want this genre of music so like say i want to play 70s prog i go and find mm -hmm. the 70s prog midi pack right i get the 70s prog drum kit and there you go it's got you know various uh, drums from that kind of era of music um, played by somebody who probably played that music at that time. Um, usually they're celebrities uh, to some extent or people that are known in their genre. Um, for example, uh, the drummer from Gojira did a pack. Uh, oh. Mike Tempesta did a pack who's you know known for a bunch of bands. Um, so there, So you can get like, you know, that kind of stuff. I know in the uh the guy from the drummer from Meshuga 
in a pack at one point. Um, and so you can go over there and you can look at their mini packs and you can see what they're kind of about. But um, what's interesting is we're going back and forth about Stephen Slade drums, and I mentioned, well, I don't really actually need drum patterns to accomplish what I do. And this led to another conversation, which was like, well, how do you do it? And I basically said, um, I I actually know how to play drums, just not physically. Like, I understand how drumming works. I understand the different handholds. I understand how to, you know, play rudiments. I just can't do any of it, <laughs> okay? I watched lesson material, and then I replicate it on a keyboard and or replicate it by actually programming what they're doing. And so once right. you do that, when you have to make a fill, you go, you go, oh, man, I really want to put a paradiddle here. And you go and you look up the, the you know, the like the drum notation for a paradiddle, and you literally just put it in there. It's not hard. Um, and I've also been known to, like, make patterns listening to other people's drums, like them playing. So, for example, um, the Pantera song, I'm Broken, um, I, I love the drum parts of that song. So what I did was I went and I listened to the song, and I actually tabbed out in, you know, in Cubase the drum part from I'm Broken. And it once you get to that point, it becomes real easy to make realistic drums. Um, it's just it's just like this freakish skill that, you know, you understand an instrument well enough to write for it, but not well enough to play it. Um, yep. And that's so I don't have that level of stuff with keys, for example. I can't I can't write key parts like that. Um, right. And I and I and I actually play keyboards, which makes it even more complicated. But I don't play enough keyboards to know, like, is this the way a real professional keyboard player would approach this? Um, I know right. enough to be dangerous, and I know enough to write like simple basic stuff, but I don't know enough to like say, "Hey, I'm gonna put this solo on this keyboard part or on this song, this keyboard solo." You know, like I, I just don't know enough about that kind of stuff. But it was just right. an interesting conversation. It's like, um, it got me thinking: who outside a guitar inspires you as a guitar player? Now, Jim, obviously you're a vocalist, so. I expect you to say some certain vocalists who put together lines that are fun to play on the guitar or at least fun to, like, try and dismantle using a guitar. Um, but, like, regular old instrumentalists, people that play other instruments that um, just inspire you, like, to think about music in a different way. I have a ton of them because I don't, not everything I listen to is actually guitar-based. Um, my kids used to complain because I'd be like, shred this or, you know, jazz that or, and one day I just said, all right, we won't listen to guitar music today. And I picked out some other stuff. And it was kind of shocking to them. But I think they both sort of took a step back and were like, wait a minute, you listen to things other than guitar music? Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so, Tim, yeah. I'll let you have the floor. You can you can go for it. Well, for me, um, <clears throat> we've talked about it before. I know you're not a fan, but Elton John um, inspires me musically. Yes, yes. Music or or vocals? No, musically. You said to stay to talk. Yeah, about no, I would. Drums. I really kind of want to talk about instruments, but yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm only going to talk about instrumentally. So just make the assumption that that the musician that I speak of is instrumentally and not vocally. Although what he does vocally is good. I don't think he's as great a singer. Um, he's he he was really good for a long time, um, but that changed. But anyway, um, yeah, Elton John, Billy Joel, um, 
So a lot of keyboard players for me come and come to mind. A lot of pianists um, are the first thing I go to. John Lord, um, you know, uh, which one of the Winter Brothers? Um, uh, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny Winter. No, Johnny. Um, Johnny was uh, he was an electric guitarist. Oh, which Edgar, is the other which, Edgar, Edgar is the uh, keyboard player. Which, yeah, they were whoever played keyboards on Frankenstein. Yeah, that's uh, that's Edgar. That's Edgar, right? Yeah, Edgar Winter Group. Yeah, EWG. Yeah, um, that that kind of keyboard playing uh, has always piqued my interest. Um, you know, it usually I go to keyboard. Sometimes, um, I'll listen to. Uh, drummers for inspiration because of their syncopation and the particular way that they drum. Phil Collins, especially early Genesis. Um, you know, uh, we've talked about him before from the police. Um, it, it's escaping me right now. Help me out. Stuart Copeland. Uh, Copeland, Stu Copeland. You know. <clears throat> he was one um, of the first guys they used drum replacement on. Did you know that? Yeah, really? Yeah, well, it was by choice, so they would they would double his drums with a sample. Oh, so, okay. So he he had some very specific sounds he was going for, and they thought they could actually reinforce with samples. So I know um, part of the uh, the last record, uh, Synchronicity, is done with like sampled drums. So those amazing drum sounds that are all over that record, most of it's samples mixed with real drums. Uh, and uh, the one that comes to mind is uh, Murder by Numbers. Oh, yeah. on that song is insanely good yeah um so you know those are that's where i kind of get my inspiration um you know there's not a lot of i don't listen to a lot of classical music to where i could name musicians from that um outside of um the the well-known folks well, Which I find horn classical players, music to be very very about the the piece and a little less about the performer, but there are definitely situations that the performer is important. Um, horn performances, like the horn section from Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, there was a band called Bonaroo Horns in the 70s, very uh, uh, very popular. I think it's spelled B-O-N-E-R-O-O. -O. It's either B-O-N or B-A-N. I just remember it's Bonaroo Horns um, because I love um uh instruments that are working in tandem and then when you have a soloist and then that comes back early chicago before they went super pop um where calf was still with them but the horn section was just stellar there's incredible. nothing there's nothing in that band that wasn't like brilliant oh yeah yeah the early years the keyboards the, the horns it was just stellar um, even, even Cetera was his singing at that time was really good. Um, you know, I think it would be hard pressed for me. I think it'd be, I think it'd be more interesting to talk about the musicians that just don't do anything for me that do a lot for other people and just don't do. I approve anything for me. It's just, I mean, I'm not saying they're bad. It's just, I listen to what I go. I don't get it. Can I can I give a couple of, can I give a couple of mine before we switch we switch Yeah, yeah, go way. ahead. Go um, ahead. John Coltrane uh is one of the ones that I he's my he's my dishwashing music. 
So oh yeah, it's I'm I have a horrible habit of letting dishes build up, and then when I have to do a bunch of them, I put on John Coltrane, um, and it doesn't really matter what record, um, but I love Supreme comes up a lot, you know, um, and no. then I'll just do the dishes and I'll sit yeah. there and listen the whole time I'm doing it. I'm like, yeah, this is great stuff, um, but no, uh, him, um, I think, uh, Keith Emerson is a huge part of like the music I listen to. Um and it's, it's hard to like pick things that aren't like completely keyboard that that are uh, not keyboard but that aren't like completely guitar. They have guitar elements to them, you know. Um but but I would say those two guys right now are like the ones that uh other ones um include people like Bjork. Uh, Bjork. Yeah. Um Bjork, Bjork. and um Peter Gabriel, obviously, like, just because there's so much going on in that music and so little of it is guitar. Um, it's so funny because, you know, like, his guitar player, like, it's his endorsement deals and stuff, like David Rhodes. Um, yeah. And uh, he's been with him forever. But it's like, what does he actually do? Because, I mean, yeah. you heard Peter Gabriel, you've seen him live, like, he does stuff, but it's not, he is not right. the main focus of that music in any way. It's, you know, he's totally a supporting guy, and he's cool with it. Um, yeah. If anything, Tony Levin is the standout, and actually, he should be on that list. Of yeah. That I appreciate as guitar player. He's bass. Bass. I mean, he's not a yeah. guitar player. Um, Tony yeah. Levin is you know huge influence on my playing and my approach to music. Um, I'm just I'm just saying that for the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, Lee Scar is another one. Um, Lee Scar has been on everything. Yep. If you've been listening to music, ever, <laughs> I don't care what decade. <laughs> You heard Lee Sklar on something, and and you've seen him in concert, likely, if you went to see anybody um, <clears throat> that wasn't, like, just that band. If you went to see any musician that had to have a bass player stand in or otherwise. I mean, he stood in for Toto. He stood in for everyone. Um, uh, Lee Sklar is an incredible... That That's another guy that could just pull notes out of the out of the ether and turn things into... And some of the simplest lines turn into the most because that that's him on Carol King, Carol King's album, Tapestry. It's just beautiful, and he's a Joni Mitchell, and he's like the guy's incredible. So, who do you who who doesn't inspire you? Who's somebody that like everybody's all like this is a great person to you know? Then you go and you listen to the record, and you're like, I don't even anything with this. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it. I, there's a lot of stuff, and I don't want to hurt anybody's no, feelings. No, yeah, well, it not, it, but it's not guitar. Like this is this is extra stuff, and we're not saying this to hurt people's feelings. It just it doesn't it doesn't inspire us, right? For me, most classical music doesn't inspire me. I love opera, I love opera, um, and I love classical music. In the if I go to a play or if I go to um, a ballet, but for some reason, just listening to classical music sitting alone. I kind of don't feel it. It always has to have some type of, um, what's the word I want, context. Um, the same songs I can't stand, I love in context, like the Star Wars soundtrack. In the movie, Beautiful it's great. Beautiful soundtrack to the movie. Without the movie, just like the movie without the soundtrack, those things are like, uh, what is it? Uh, you got peanut butter, my chocolate, I got chocolate, your peanut butter. They don't work. They don't work separately for me. Um, you know, uh, you know that I don't get death metal. 
I don't get it. I, as I, I don't think it's bad. I just don't get it. Um, I can't. I can't listen to Cookie Cut. If you li- if you have Cookie Monster vocals in anything, I can't. I don't get it. It's not that again. It's not because I think it's bad. So I just don't get it. Here's the crazy thing, Jim. Yeah. Um. And and this is oh big- wait jazz guitar. I that's, love that's still guitar though. I mean, yeah, but I I don't get it. I love Coltrane, right? I mean, we just we just agreed on that. But give me a jazz guitar player that's doing jazz guitar. I don't get it. I love like Amy Nolte when she plays. If you heard her, uh, incredible pianist. Um, I love to hear her play, and I love her hear her play things that guitar players have played that I just don't get. And yeah, I hear her play. And I get it. So <laughs> I'm just saying. So you're not a fan of Charlie Christian, then, is what you're telling me. <laughs> Charlie Christian, I get. I do get Charlie. So he's the, but he's like the basis of all that stuff. Like, I mean, there's other people that go go back further, but Charlie Christian. Um. Uh, oh crap! Why am I forgetting his name? Two Fingers was a uh, Django. Django Reinhardt. I got that era of jazz. I get. I think it's more of the modern jazz guys. Yeah, like um, when when Pat Metheny and that ilk kind of took hold. Like I get Pat Metheny, but I'm not I'm not seeking yeah. out Pat Metheny. Alan Holdsworth I can listen to, and 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 that's unapproachable for a lot of people. Yeah, that's unapproachable for me. I don't get it. But I think it's because my perception of jazz started with bebop, and so like yeah, moving into Holdsworth is not a huge stretch. From, yeah. You know, somebody like Miles Davis in the fifties, or Coltrane, or Charlie Parker, or you yep. know, going from the, or Sun Ra. That was another one that came up last week. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So, Sun, yeah. Sun Ra is insane. Ra. Some of that music yeah. is so insane. Um, and and it's I mean insane. Like you're kind of wondering what they were thinking when they wrote it. Like what? <laughs> what how, how did they, what happened that made this? Like is this 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 is heroin and right like magic mu- like, yeah anyway. mushrooms and heroin i think yeah and that's the only way that that like some of that stuff happens it's like yeah um uh let's face it that's what that's what made coltrane um there was a lot of a there lot was of a lot there. of there was a lot of uh narcotics involved in in uh coltrane parker miles davis early years yep um, miles davis oh my god yes well until he until he kicked it it but yeah i think by the yeah, he and a lot of people have he said the same thing. Turkey. Once he went cold turkey, and not to say that he wasn't a great musician, obviously. Well, he never stopped smoking. <laughs> Let's be real yeah. clear on that. <laughs> I think he, I think he gave up, uh, gave up the cocaine and the heroin for the uh, and the heroin the cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, once he fell off the back of the monkey, though, that it, or the monkey off his back, whatever you say. I'm not good at those those things. Yeah. Um, it it lost a little something there. That's like Aerosmith for me. Let's yeah, let's talk about. Uh, yeah, let's, let's switch gears. I let's talk about some other bands that we don't that don't terribly inspire us. The early Aerosmith, I loved Toys in the Attic. You know, um, Trent Caprolin. Once they kicked their habit, and they brought in like <clears throat> other people, and they were like, "Look at us, we're drinking water, and we're yuck." You know I, what's I funny to me that the record that had "Dude Looks Like a Lady" on it, and um, that that was like one of their biggest records. Something vacation, right? Yeah, I that think. Re- that record's pretty bad. 
It's um, not good. It's very cheesy compared to like their contemporaries of that time. Um, because that was around the time they did like walk. They they did that walk this way with the MDC and all that, right? I mean, that's that's whatever. And and you got Aerosmith being compared to their contemporary, which was Guns N' Roses. Who, if you've never actually thought about it, Guns N' Roses is basically Aerosmith with more drugs, and that's right, just like turned up to eleven. Um, yeah. and <laughs> and it's really funny with a better second guitar player. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's funny to me because when you make that comparison, like obviously you know we're not we're not Jim, you and I are not people that condone people doing drugs and like throwing no. their lives away, but like that was part of that lifestyle, and. Yep. If you compare that Aerosmith record to like Appetite for Destruction, it's like what they just like missed the last fifteen years of what was going on. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, uh, and they, and they basically went down the pop direction rather than the than the rock and roll direction. Um, yep, which is really inter- interesting to me. They went down the pop direction. I mean, to the point where it's acceptable now to put um him on American Idol. You know. And he's a judge on he was a judge on American Idol. Like, what the hell is this? Uh, that was kind of my impression of that. You know, yeah. that's like, well, could you imagine them putting Mick Jagger on like British Idol or whatever? Right. It just doesn't make any sense. You it's, know? it's the most it was the most bizarre thing, but it wasn't as bizarro as him throwing his daughter in the video. Yes. For that. that Well, so that, yeah, that seems super bizarre, but if you stop and you think about it, she wanted a career in acting. This is a way yeah. to give her the hand up. Because that was her and Alicia Silverstone in that first video there. And, and for and for a number of years, Alicia Silverstone was the one that got in the employment. Yeah, yeah, until uh, um, his daughter, I can't remember her name, she landed the job as the elf in uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. Well, she'd done some other stuff, but that was the big one. Right. That was the big. That was the big breakout before that. And and I don't, I don't get me wrong. I didn't think she was bad. I th- you know what was that movie? She was Ben Affleck's love interest in the, um, in the movie about the. Yeah, yeah. She was bad in it. No, but it's the, just I thought it was a the movie was the have, movie was bad. <laughs> I thought it was a little creepy to have your daughter in like a uh, kind of a sexualized uh, song that you performed. I just. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> a bit creepy. I mean, yeah, I just thought that that was something that, you know, you know, um, speaking of, of stuff like that. So let's talk about music that, that guitar music, especially uh, because guitar music is so rock and hard and, and it comes from a place where um, there was some socially unacceptable, unacceptable today by today's standards that, um, you know, you look back on. Yeah. Cause I, I don't mean, think any. You have to understand that a lot of the things that were going on in seventies and eighties rock and roll, like when people talk about Led Zeppelin and their debauchery, and right. they're like, they're you know, they were womanizers and all this. You got to understand at that time, like that was the norm. They, right. it, it wasn't like they were doing anything worse than anybody else. I mean, I mean, it's, of course they were, but but you know what I mean. Like yeah, it, it, in the context of the time they were in, it wasn't as bad as it is now. This band goes to eleven. Um, the the thing I'm talking about is, is so, yeah, we have a tendency, I think, to look at things with today's glasses. Um, 
Definitely. So I was watching, and what made me think of that was I was watching MASH, okay? And if anybody ever watched MASH, it was probably the, one of the most tamest things on television you've ever seen, right? Alan Alda. Um, yeah. He was a huge... Um, he was I a ladies' man. Yeah. So I've seen the movie before. I always yeah, who hasn't? So I watched the pilot, and I don't want to get any specifics because I don't want I don't want a bunch of social justice worrying things going on. All I'm saying is I watched the pilot and I thought to myself, this was MASH? 1972. Pilot was 1972. For the television series that ran at that time, it was the longest running television series outside of anything in the soap opera realm of, of all time. Um, right next to Gunsmoke. Okay. Yeah, Gunsmoke. Yeah. And uh, I think Gunsmoke actually was the, the very longest, but MASH was getting there. And then MASH uh, left after, you know, but so many people left the show and so many people came. And, um, the, the point I'm going to make is if you go back and watch the pilot, which if you have Hulu, you can go do, um, you'll see that uh, it didn't age well. No, no, there's a lot. There's definitely a lot of um, kind of cringy things that happen in old TV. Um, but that's because... and that was regular 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. television standard family television. Yeah, because because historicity is always well, hindsight's always 20, right? We look it back, is. We look back through the lens of today and we don't we don't realize that. We 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 think these people are horrible people, but in reality, this is just the culture they knew, this is the culture they were brought in brought into, this is the culture that it was just normal. This was just normalcy for them. It wasn't right, you know. Um, and so that's what like when we talk about people and drug use and music, um, we can kind of half half hazardly joke about it, but realistically, like nobody knew any better back then. I mean, they right. used to call cocaine marching powder because. It kept them on the road. It kept them going. Um, they had no other way to function because they were playing two, in some cases, two shows a night. You know, yeah, for for 190 dates a year. I mean, yeah, we talk about early jazz, um, and you know the the politics behind the whole prohibition of of marijuana was centered around a whole bunch of people who didn't like the jazz scene and wanted to get marijuana um, well, prohibited. That and the hemp thing. The fact right. that uh, Southern cotton farmers were terrified the hemp production of hemp. That's right. Would overtake cotton in the United States. The cotton. Because it grows faster. Which, yeah, and it could. And it could have. It still, it um, still could. I mean. And what's funny is they threw, and that was where, you know, you had that whole thing. Where hemp, not to get too too in the too in the weeds, no pun intended about it. Wow! But, um, you, get, <laughs> you got hemp that was thrown in with the drug. That that kind of you see what I mean? Yeah. So, um, but the tobacco farmers in the South were doing fine, right? So, just saying. Um, yeah. While all that's going on, Philip Morris is like, <laughs> "Let's market to children." Yeah. Um, yeah. Joe Camel. 
or that whatever that guy was for Marlboro, the Marlboro Man. Yeah. How can I forget who who oh, it was? Oh, oh, you mean Cancer and that Man? That was my childhood. You mean Cancer I, Man? I, yeah, I remember those things. I remember um, my father giving me a note. Let Jimmy buy. He, he gave me a note. Um, Jimmy is. Uh, I've given Jimmy ten dollars to buy beer and cigarettes, um, and he could use the rest for, you know, whatever he wants. So I would go down, and then the, the guy would give me back, you know, two cents or whatever it was, and I get some penny candy and some uh, uh, a, a comic book or two with the with the leftover money, totally and I'd hilarious. have all of maybe fifty cents. What's that? That's hilarious. Dating myself, of course. I'm going to the five and dime. Not, not now. Everything's five and there, under. There are I'm definitely there are definitely family members in my family who are thrilled when somebody turned eighteen or twenty one, because that meant they could buy them alcohol. Or I was eight. Get them cigarettes. Was, yeah. yeah, but I mean, like, I I could totally relate, except that we just didn't yeah. do it, we just didn't do it in that way, you know. Um, yeah, I can remember buying cigarettes from for my my mother in law. Yeah. Like, um, so I, mean, I did the same thing. Yeah, so uh, it's just, my mother in law would give me money to buy duty free cigarettes because so I would come back from the ship. <laughs> so that's what makes it kind of interesting, though, because like. Um, you look at gear trends, and you look at you look at trope guitar, right? Like the kind of guitar playing that um people still do today. That's very so. This is actually the story I want to talk about. We just we just cut right to the chase. Ozzy yep. Osbourne, right? Yeah. Um, right before Randy Rhodes, he finds Randy Rhodes. He's sitting in a hotel room. He's basically like you know, briefcase full of cocaine, trying to. Try to put his life back together. Um, Sharon, his manager, is trying to find his does wife yet. Um, trying to find a guitar player that can that can join his band, so they can go to England and cut a record. Right. And um, they're in L.A. They got I think it's like two weeks to find somebody or whatever um, before he he was leaving. And uh, they kept they auditioned everybody in town. Everybody went to that audition. And the problem was they kept getting Hendrix clones. They kept getting people that sounded just like Jimi Hendrix. And nobody wanted Ozzy to be with Jimmy. Like, that was just not, like, his producer and whoever else was involved in this whole process. Um, so they waited for somebody like Randy Rhodes to come along, um, who just blew him away and got the job pretty much the moment he showed up. Um, and if you if you think about that in context... Like, we definitely have cultural and normative bias towards, you know, whatever our gener- whatever we grew up doing, right? So, like, today, we have so many Stevie Ray Vaughan clones. If you haven't been paying attention, some of your most favorite, most popular guitar players may be doing, like, innovation on Stevie Ray Vaughan style. Uh, Dave Rommel. Mayor to an extent, obviously he's forging kind of his own path, but but um, he definitely grew up playing SRV tunes, um, and I could I could name a dozen others if I really wanted to sit down and think about it, or, or you could look at somebody like um, Joe Bonamassa, who is obviously going for the Art Johnson, um, and other people. I mean, in fact, that was really funny. One of his rig rundowns, they asked him, they said. Oh, that's a that's a little bit like Eric Johnson or whatever, right? He's 
well, then maybe you're figuring out what I'm trying to do. Like, you know, he wasn't even going to beat around the bush. He was like, well, maybe you're starting to get clued in here. You know, That's not his, that's not his style. Yeah. Um, to beat around the bush. I, I know nothing that's, uh, when it comes to Bonamassa, I don't think he, he gives a sweet rat's patootie about that, about what people say about his oh, style. Oh yeah, he totally admits like, like you know, who he's and, borrowing from or whatever. And he says, care. he says things like, um, you know, apparently they just like really like watching a white dude play blues like really fast over over you know, twelve bar changes like that's yeah. you know, that's like that's my thing you know, um yeah which which is actually kind of refreshing, uh to see somebody who doesn't take you know who's who is an artist but doesn't take themselves so seriously like that, um but I, but my point is that like we we tend to look at what comes before us and we don't really see this tropey until somebody comes and innovates beyond that and takes a step forward. It's like, if you showed me a bunch of Jimi Hendrix guys around the time before Ozzy Osbourne's first record came out and, like, asked me, hey, what, you know, do you think these guys are good? I'd be like, hell yeah, they're all good. You know, they're all great. Um, And they probably still are, quite frankly. But then Randy Rhodes comes along, right? He does his thing. And basically reinvents like hard rock guitar, and, and dies a couple of years later. Yeah, and dies a couple of years later, which which doesn't hurt in making his status that much more legendary. Um, and if you really look at that scenario, like it changes the hindsight of you know Jimi Hendrix did this, and then there's Randy Rhodes who did this, and then next is you know Eddie Van Halen who did this, and you can really see these like juxtapositions where we take these giant leaps through these certain players and then everything in retrospect is kind of like, well, yeah, that's not all that great. And so the, so the important ones stay important, but the ones that we're all doing similar things kind of go off to the side a little bit. Right. Um, so perfect example, uh, the, the greatest Hendrix clone of all time uh, is Robin Trower. And I know people say, well, he's kind of his unique own animal and he is, but even he would freely admit that he was very into Hendrix when he did his first two records. And his now, use of the uh, uh, Univibe. The was... Univibe is directly indicative, you know, yeah. indicative of his love for Jimmy. Um, and so nobody is like, when you look back, you're, if, you're, if you're just getting into guitar for the first time, you didn't hear about Robin Trower, unless you grew up and, you know, that record was out or whatever. Uh, today, you're going to find Robin Trower long after you've been involved in guitar for a while. Somebody's going to say, hey, you should check out this. Or like Pat Travers is another one that's kind of like that, where you're going to find out about him because somebody tells you about it. But those guys get pushed off to the side for a reason. And that's because we we tend to like follow the most direct route, you know, to the to the source, like where, wherever that source is for us. Um, that's how Eric yeah. Clapton ended up with... Uh, uh, John Mayo? Well... Going back, like Eric Clapton was really into um, uh, the early blues guys, Robert Johnson, for example. Um, and it was, you know, nearest yeah. path back, straight back to Robert Johnson. And same thing for like um, Stevie Ray was like nearest path back to Jimi Hendrix. And I know people like, he's obviously an Albert King clone too, so there's more to it than that. Obviously, they have different branches and stuff. But, um, you can see well, that Stevie's, you can trace those lineages, right? Right. Stevie's connection to King, right? Um, to uh, Albert, Albert King, thank you, is a lot more direct than say 
uh, Clapton's connection to, say, uh, Robert Johnson. Clapton was laying down records and doing the stuff. Stevie was able to actually witness what King was doing. Yeah, I don't. So I don't think he'd actually seen him, though, until after he was pretty well famous. Like, I I don't mean met him in person. I mean, seen him. Like, seen him live. Where well, that's what, that's what I'm thinking. Was. I don't know that he necessarily because I I remember reading an article where the first time he went to actually go see him, he was like floored, and he'd already been you know like had all his records, you know, all the ones he could get his hands yeah. on, and then the, and then he actually got to meet him backstage, and it was like a whole other experience for him because he had never even seen him live. Yeah, because um, I, I just know that Vaughn grew up um, in a blues environment. Right, the Texas his blues. Older, scene. Jimmy is older, right? So Jimmy had exposed him to some stuff and his family had exposed him to um, the rest of his family. Had J- Jimmy him. was significantly older. He's he's um, I think he's 10 years older. Yeah, he, I thought so. I knew he was a bit a lot older. Um, and with Clapton, I'm just saying I'm just trying to put some things in perspective. The guys from England, Clapton, Page, uh, Frampton. um who else is from that time frame? What you got to remember, uh, Jim, is the records they were buying were old blues records for the most part. And then, like, of course, Jimmy had his affinity for Elvis as well. Um, right. And so if you were in England at the time, if you think about England at that time and, and, and America and, and our trade uh, relationships and such with that, um, and I'm old enough to, to firsthand have experienced some of the trade relationships with European countries. Um, the, uh, you couldn't get, uh, you remember the story about um, Fender going over to the, to, right? Yeah, they would have to and, hire sailors to buy the records in the United States so when they'd come back, they'd have a bucket full of records. And in many cases, the yeah. sailors were doing it on their own because they knew that there was a lucrative business. That was a lucrative thing. We um we did the same thing with blue jeans. We'd set we'd set 10, 12 pair of blue jeans aside to bring over to sell to people in Europe, um, especially Western or I'm sorry, Eastern Europe, um, because they couldn't get blue jeans when I was going over there in the beginning. And you could make a killing on a pair of, of regular old Wranglers. Um, much less Levi's. Levi's were, that was gold. It was gold. You can make a bunch of money that way. But anyway, so to put that in perspective is what I'm saying is it wasn't easy to get your hands on those records over there. And so when one of them would get a record, you know, these contemporaries would often trade back and forth this music, but they learned from, imagine learning um because we, we we take for granted the the audio quality we have of our music imagine learning from a record that got shipped from the states overseas to to england or was bought from some sailor that had come into portsmouth or london area right um and then brought to uh someone who then sold it from this record store who Half the time didn't treat them very well. You get it in the back then paper sleeve. They weren't treated nicely if it was in the sleeve at all. Um, and then throw it onto a record player um, half the time with a dime taped to the 
top of the thing so that it didn't skip, right? Yeah. And uh, to the needle. Um, and you'd, uh, well, the arm where the needle was. And uh, listening to that music through, most of the time through mono, because the, the recordings were mono anyway, um, and bad. So you had a bad copy of a bad record um, that was badly produced. Um, and uh, then these guys would, uh, they, they would have to learn these things. And, and that's where, that's why I think guys like Clapton, and we, we take that for granted. I'm, what I'm, I'm getting to a point here. Guys like Clapton and Page and um, Frampton and those guys, they had to come up with something new because it, it was like in the gaps. A, right. They, it was like they got a dot book. You remember those fill in the dots or connect the dots things? Yeah, they get a couple Some of licks off each record because, yeah. Right. You could draw a straight line between the dots and you could make this jagged looking thing or you could, you could develop, you know, a nice curve, right? That would that would flow through the dots. And that's what they were doing. These were the guys that weren't just, oh, I heard this note here, I heard this note here, heard this note here. Those are the only ones I'm going to apply. They were filling it in and yeah. then coloring it in. Stevie Ray actually talked about this. Um, he talked about, you know, the, the way that an American guy would play a particular tune versus the way like somebody like Eric Clapton would. He said, I would, he said, not me. I was trying to synthesize how to do both because he was very into British blues at the same time that he was also like cultivating old Java King and stuff. And if you really, right. if you really think about it, um, he's on to something. Yeah. Um, it's really clear that British blues has a distinct sound. John Mayall does not sound like the record does not sound like anything from, from uh, Freddie King. Um, right. And uh, that's okay. Right. Like um, I, I, I think it's a distinct sound like Texas blues does not sound like Mississippi Delta blues. They're, they're two right. completely different and, things. And um, that doesn't sound like, and, and in, even in Chicago, you live there. Yep. Southern Chicago blues didn't sound like blues from um, St. Louis. Right. Didn't sound like blues that came from Kansas uh, city. Right. Kansas city. And, so, and they're right there. Yeah, I mean those three; those three places are right there. You could you could play in both in all three of those places. You yeah, know? and that they often and, did. Muddy Waters, did, right? Yeah, that was a circuit. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is like from from the perspective of like people in their direct path back to where they came from, and how we look at cultural norm, norms outside of the guitar community. And we look at through things through the histor historicity lens. This is how we right. get people who make commentary like Jimi Hendrix is a bad guitar player. We, I think we've all seen those kind of threads popping up from time to time. Um, and and I, I'm the first person who's like, shut up. Because like, like everybody else, I look at that situation and I go, Jimi Hendrix begat everyone else that comes after him. In the sense right. that even if you don't like his music, you'd heard it. And you, there ain't a guy alive that 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 plays guitar, guy or gal, frankly, alive that plays guitar and would look and say, I am not in some way influenced by what Jimi Hendrix did. 
because right. I'll guarantee you somebody in your tree of influences was. And you can trace him back, you know, and go obviously down the path of like who he came from and you'll discover a lot more. But the point is that, you know, he's like a funnel. All this stuff comes in, narrows to a point, and then comes out as an hourglass. And then you see that from I want to the make other a, side. Yeah, and I want to make a very, very um, important point about Hendrix. So we take, again, another thing we, uh, today, again, this has got to do with the histronics. We take for granted that you have access to this huge well of music. Yes. Hendrix grew up poor in Seattle, Washington. Okay? Not exactly known in the 50s. At, at that time, when he right. was growing up as a hotbed for blues music. Okay? Not exactly. And then add that. So he had a very funk-oriented uh, beginning. And then if you if you add that, I mean, not, not that there weren't any blues there, but he had a, so he brought a, a bunch of different flavors. Look at who he played for. Yeah. Isley I brothers. mean, he was backing. Yeah. The Isley brothers. Um, among among the, others. Uh, who's the guy that, that uh, famously little, did. Little um, Richard. Little Richard. Um, he got fired from <laughs> little Richard. <laughs> yeah. Everybody got fired by Little Richard. Yeah. It was not a big deal. Yeah. Everybody got to play for Little Richard and everybody got fired. Otherwise, other people couldn't play for Little Richard. Um, he played for uh who's oh jeez. Um, not Moni Moni. I'm kidding. Oh, it's one of those days. My brain is not not kicking over. Um uh he he sang um uh the big the big song that no man wants to play because it's been overdone. Um, but he recorded it. Uh, I'm going to Google. And it's about, <laughs> I had a Mustang, um, bought it back in 1969. Um, I bought you a vintage Mustang back in 1969. That's, that's a line from the song. Do not ask me. Folks, I know you're screaming the song right now at me. And I cannot come and you a vintage Mustang back in 1969. Curtis Knight and the Squires. Uh, ride. Sally uh, Ride. Mustang Sally. Who's the guy that did Mustang Sally? I don't know who did it originally. Everybody well, anyway. that song. Yeah. And notice the people he played for. Um, and because of that. Sam Cooke, Wilson Pickett. That's who it was. Wilson Pickett. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Sam Cooke. Oh, this one. is crazy. So, so he's also a backup musician for Ike and Tina as well. Yep. So if you think about all those, let's look at those, um, those, you know, individually, Sam Cooke, total pop music with a blues influence, total pop music, right? Um, the, you know, Wilson Pickett, more of a, more of a funky, uh, almost jazz influenced thing, right? You've got all these people. Plus, you've got the fact that Jimmy lived in Seattle. He went to the army. He went overseas. He lived in Germany. He was in, yeah, he, he was, was a in, lot more well well rounded in terms of musical knowledge than I think people care to realize. They just heard the he, rock and roll, right? And but, he was bringing in all of these influences that he had gotten from being worldly. Let's face it, the guy was worldly, right? 
And so if you take uh, all of this worldly influence that he had, he, he, and he was the kind of guy that was still open to ideas. Um, he, he took in what was around, you know, you could sit there and go, Actually, yeah, he was man, probably ooh. more excited about ideas than anything else. That was what motivated. Right. And when you're 18, 19 years old or 60, you know, think back then, you, everything you saw, you were a sponge. You brought it in. We didn't, we hadn't built our walls yet. We hadn't formulated ourselves. And if we think about that and we think about Hendricks and what he's done, what he did, um, that is why in all reality, Hendricks can be tied out, but he's kind of like that big bang theory in that all these particles came together and then boom, exploded. And it's, right? ha it's happened since. I mean, we've seen oh, yeah. that again. A lot of these oh, yeah. players that we talked about, like Randy Rose, for example, was doing right. the same thing. Um, he was, you know, combining his classical music with his love for blues and rock and roll and yep. coming out with this whole heavy metal thing that was like a totally different. It was on, it was on another level. Like nobody, nobody had done that yet. Um, and then very soon after you had people like Eddie Van Halen and Ingve, who yep. were taking those same concepts and doing them well as well. Um, there, I mean, there's always been classical influence in hard rock. Uh, Richie Blackmore famously is yep. ripped off stuff by Bach and oh. other people, but that's because like Richie Blackmore directly, Richie Blackmore was probably more interested in that music than he wasn't actually making Deep Purple music, which is why yeah. he went off and did a Renaissance thing, um, the Renaissance band he put together because because he was he was a professional musician. That's what he was. That's right. That first Deep Purple record. If you've never heard the Book of Talesian, um, yeah, I, I don't know that you'd want to, but it's yeah. really really wild to listen to that and then listen to In Rock. Because Talesian is nothing like it. And you get this very staunch impression that the guys that remained from that that went on to do in rock, because there was a whole lineup shift and everything, yep. they were making money. That's the only reason that band existed. Now they were rough yeah. they were rough around the edges too, but they were they weren't wanting money. They were musical yeah, mercenaries. Pe yeah, people who uh listened to the first the first Deep Purple single was nothing like whatever came after it. The first version uh, of Hush? Yeah. That, yeah. that was not... That, <laughs> that version of Hush never gets played. The version of Hush you hear is the one off of, like, Come Taste the Band or whatever, um, which is, you know, the... One Completely the later, different. One of the later moments. More pop. Who exactly, but maybe it's yeah, more radio-friendly. Um, but, but, you know, it's not to say that Deep Purple didn't make great music or fun yeah. music at least, and that they're, they were incredible musicians through and through, and, and you know, many of them are still around. Um, I, I, those guys are, are, are some of my favorite players, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend like Deep Purple was not a band that was out to make money. Like, they clearly, that was why everything kept breaking, was because creative control and money. And yeah. um, they kept splitting up, and a whole, you know, they reunite and they do some massive world tour and make a bunch of money and then they would take time off. And uh, that was back when you could make money doing that kind of music too, which was a whole other, like you can't make money doing that kind of music now. Um, uh, cause they're, cause they're borderline. Like they were the only guys I could see being called fusion that were really just straight rock and roll. 
because their level of musicianship was to the point where they had almost crossed over into this whole like other realm of you know uh level of musicianship um another band that we even led zeppelin like synthesizing influences is another similar band where um you got skiffle and all this other stuff that goes into led zeppelin to create what it is um and elvis presley being mixed with you know the blues and as well as some of the jazz stuff that that and the Yardbirds, the psychedelic music that would come just prior. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jimmy Jimmy had to, as a as part of his job, he had to learn everything. Because he would be he would be in recording and then a Kellogg's were, commercial. We're the same deal. I and, mean Yeah. And they were buddies. Well, at least uh, uh um They were competitive. They were competitive, but they were yeah. like they didn't hate each other. In right. fact, they gave each other work. Eric Clapton hired Jimmy Page to go on the road with the Yardbirds. And then Jimmy Page ended up taking over the band and owning the trademark before it was over with. Yeah. Because um, he was good with money. Yeah. He was good with business. Um, he was. It, yeah. He but, was a, a rare breed when it comes to uh, music. But the other band that we don't talk about much, I think we have mentioned them before, but yes. And of course, Steve Howe and uh, uh, Wakeman, right? Yeah. So. Um, yes, had a ton of lineup changes though, and that and that's yeah. and that's where it makes it difficult to like point at the unit and say, yes, as the band, because so I mean, how many? But that early stuff they had? they've had like four or five. No, even on the early stuff they had like four different keyboard players. Um, well, they had yeah, a, a new yeah. one per record for a while, um, <laughs> and which is amazing to me because the keyboards are always like the most off the charts thing on, um, yes records. Um, but it just seems to me that like, yes, is an, is a, is a, while you're right. Um, if you want to look at a level of musicianship, uh, but I just saw as like, yes, as a cast of characters with like John Anderson and, and, uh, like the core of the band basically. Yeah. John Anderson, um, Chris Squire and, and, uh, um, I just mentioned him how. Yeah. Cause, Howe. Cause everybody else just kind of changed out as needed, including Rick Wakeman, you know? Yeah. So who came and went. Yeah, he literally, <laughs> and came back again. Yeah, um, he's well. He's considered yeah. by most people to be like the best yes musician. But even other guitar, yeah. even other guitar players, like you had uh, Trevor Rabin, was was uh, yeah. like guitar player for that band in like multiple incarnations. People, a lot of people, are like oh, well, he's only on Loner and Owners of Lonely Heart. No, he was involved in, in other stuff too. Um, and now when they when they tour, like they have a lot of these other guys go with them. Because they don't really have a huge career outside of their contribution to Yes. So, like, I know that they they did one tour where they had, like, four guitar players. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I think Hal was with them when they did um, some of the later stuff, too. But, you know, Yes disbanded. Yeah, he left. He left for that owner of a lonely heart period um, and then came back. Which is funny he because did, he uh, plays G- it now. Yeah, he did Asia and GTR. Right. Yeah. Which, um, GTR was what's that? Wasn't uh, Raven in GTR? I believe that's the R. In yeah. GTR. Yeah. Greg, I can't remember the other and and Raven. I, and that was that was the band. I mean that you know, um, great group though. Yeah. yeah. GTR is is one that a lot of people don't mention, but if you want to look at supergroups of the um that eighties period, definitely Asia as well as GTR is huge. 
Guthrie Govan is, has uh, joined Asia more than once. Has he really? Yeah. I would have loved to see Asia with Guthrie Govan. Yeah, he may still know? be doing that gig. I don't know. You have to look. Um, but he was. Yeah, I'll have. He subbed in for them because um, somebody. Who's singing for them now? I don't know. Because the bass player and singer, he died. Yeah. Passed away. This last year. Last year. Right. Um, you know, Guthrie just went out on the road to thing. So, all right, let's talk about um, let's talk about some soap opera type stuff before we quit tonight. Yeah, yeah, because we're we're coming up on an hour and twenty minutes. All right, let's talk about Roger Waters and how uh, David Gilmore has told him he cannot host his band's stuff to Pink Floyd's site, and Waters is pissed. Waters is furious. He's like, so he's out there, he being Gilmore, is out there posting, um, you know, stuff his wife is doing. Um, I can't remember Gilmore's wife's name, but Polly, Polly, Pollyanna. They really do. Um, I know her name is Those two really need to bury the hatchet. I know, I know. It's just to the point where it's like two grown men fighting, and it's just dumb. Did you see Gilmore's newest thing where he's singing with his daughter? No. I, they, yeah, they, they, I, you know, like I like I'm not going to sit here and pretend like um I don't I don't like Dave Gilmore or anything. Um, I absolutely yeah. adore Dave Gilmore, but yeah. I will say this: um, the the this like musical feud that goes on between him and Waters is just pointless at this point. It nobody's is. expecting them to get back together, and nobody no. is go- nobody's expecting anybody to say, "Well, Roger Waters wasn't Pink Floyd, or David Gilmore wasn't Pink Floyd. It was all Roger Waters." If you're in either of those camps. Like, you're weird. Because most people I know are just like, it's not one or the other, it's both, and and or neither. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. it's it, Pink Floyd was about the songs that came out that were created by the four individuals involved with the <laughs> band, not one, not any one of them in particular. Um, we can that- definitely say that certain records are definitely like, that's a Waters record, or that's a Gilmore record. But I will, but I will, I will defend the fact that none of them are bad. I know people will say like, um, "What's the one with uh, Fletcher?" Oh, Moore the final album? cut. The final cut. The I know people cut. hate that album. It's got two of David Gilmore's best solos on it. How can you yeah. say that? Not now, John is one of my favorite songs on there, and that's the that's Fletcher Dave Memorial Death Home. Movie. It's got that solo, Fletcher man. Memorial. He just murders yeah. that solo. Um. And I, I like honestly, that was when I heard that that solo. I was like, "That's the tone I'm looking for. That's what I would like to sound like." When I heard it, um, now obviously I moved on from that, but it that was like a whole that was a period where I was chasing like that high watt cranked up, you know, with a with a color sound power booster in front of it. Um, yeah, and I was using every modeling amp I could get to you know try and emulate that because obviously high <laughs> watts of that kind of pedigree are hard to find. Um, with Fane speakers, no less. Um, so I get it, you know, I get it when, when people are like, when, when Gilmore is like a jerk and, uh, and or Roger Waters is a jerk. See, Roger Waters is reading him to filth on, on social media right now, which is just like, just as bad as David Gilmore being like, don't post your stuff here. Um, cause it's like one thing if it's a private business discussion behind closed doors, but it's another thing to like. No, I'm gonna get your goat. I'm gonna get the fans involved. You, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it's kind of messed up. 
and that's that's what I was going at is that uh, like I said, it's very soap opera. Um, I don't think. Okay, so obviously it's it's Gilmore's thing. It, it's it, Gilmore and and Nick Mason are the only two left. Um, so yeah, with, with, well, uh, I mean now, I mean for if you're going to talk ownership of the band today, right, it's obviously right, there are three now. And the, I think the, I think David is probably doing this, being a little petty here, um, personally. I think Dave is still ticked because of the bad blood between him and um, keyboard player. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rick Wright. I, well, I, between I was, Roger and Rick Wright. That's right. what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah. Roger and Rick Wright. I, I think yeah. they're still, because, so if you didn't know, like, that's basically the, the thing is that, they got to final cut or whatever, and then they fired. Uh, well, they, they had fired they, him at the wall. They fired so, him at the wall, right? Yeah, um, they fired. So Rick Wright in the in the. So I had the original pressing. It had Rick Wright listed in the band. Yeah. If you buy it now, it does not have Rick Wright listed in the band. Right. Was he fired before he the tour? Yeah, he was fired before the album was finished. So they, that well, he was fired, but he got to finish his parts on the album. But he was listed as like a supporting member, right? That was right, the, and um, he was the only one who actually made money on the tour. Yeah, because the the tour ate their checkbooks up like something fierce, which was why they had to come back and do the final cut, which was like the cheapest like Pink Floyd record ever. It uh, was a cheap, probably a a short stint in the studio. It was. Uh, a lot of people didn't like. I like. I like it. I don't love it, but I like it. There's a couple I, it's not songs bad. It's not the greatest record ever, or anything. But it's not a bad record. People act like, well, bad Pink Floyd is like the worst thing ever. Listen, it's still Pink Floyd, right? You know, right. and you listen to it, it's still freaking great. Um, it's just and, not as good as the other ones. <laughs> right. And if you listen to that, and then you listen to um, what is it? Uh, something about hitchhikers, hitchhiking. Pros and cons of hitchhiking. Yeah. So the pros and cons of hitchhiking, um, you listen to that and you go, oh, that's where it is. That is definitely a Gilmore record. But yeah. no, no, you know, because pros and cons of hitchhiking obviously is Gilmore. Or I mean, I'm sorry, not Gilmore, uh, Waters uh, solo. And because um, Waters went solo, he went big budget and he got, uh, and he fought, he struck real early um he came out said i quit pink floyd dumb move number one um i'm sure he's regretted ever since f pink floyd dumb move number three two and f you david gilmore i'm gonna have eric clapton play on my record dumb move number three uh because i don't think that gilmore is a on a personal level um or at least at that time a fan of Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton said and did some things back then that uh, are pretty reprehensible. Um, well, and we I think there's, all, there's also that pop guitar side of it, too, where yeah. uh, Gilmore was not really all that thrilled with a lot of his contemporaries. They they actually asked him, like, of the progressive rock bands, you know, other than Pink Floyd, like, what's your favorite? And he was like, I don't like any of them. You know, like, yeah. like uh, so if you think about that, you know, contemporaries would have been like Genesis um king crimson yep. it would have been like yes obviously emerson lincoln palmer and for yep. him to be like that's kind of like whoa that's kind of weird um yeah but he was very much about like 
music making a statement more than just being like playing playing virtuosic virtuosity type stuff. And so if you yep. have people, if you remember like Clapton, the whole Clapton is God thing was going on, and um, I'm sure he was not like he may have actually yeah. known Clapton. He may have known Clapton was not that dude, but the idea right. of Clapton really bothered him. And yep. I think that's more or less like what Roger Waters was trying to, you know, like here, let's yeah. let's, let's get his goat. Uh, and that's and stupid. Course- that's just bad because it's because it, the art. So I've I've never been a fan of Roger Waters' solo music, never, and uh, I don't think I've I've liked a single song he's done. Um, and really, there unless you live through those time periods, you don't hear those records played, never. Um, no, and. And so he had. He also brought in Snowy White, who had who had been on the Wall tour. Yeah. Um. So he kind of thumbed his nose and gave Waters the, or I mean, uh, uh, Gilmore the finger, which I think is what, what kind of set things apart for a long time. I mean, I, it's still dragging on. Um. Uh, it, it'll the, it, the it's whole gonna live go thing. It's going to go on with these two dudes until they're dead. It, it right. is going to go whole, on with these two guys until they're gone. Yeah, Gilmore doesn't need any money. He so the whole Live Aid thing was was a um, backdoor, uh, not a good thing. Um, the the guy who was the the guy from the Boomtown Rats who put it all together. He played Pink in the Pink Floyd movie. Yeah. Um, anyway, he was putting that together, um, and uh, he didn't tell Gilmore Waters was going to be there. And that was a last minute thing. And it by then it was like, okay, David, if you pull out, we're going to tell everybody you pulled out of this big thing this for big everybody. Chari- this big charity thing. They this forced big charity event because you're a, you're a um, uh, egocentric, um, petty prick. And so pretty much she was strong-armed for, to... Put which, the band, which is funny because he gets the one that's being the the one with the negative reputation. It's not him. Yeah, remember that Roger Waters voted to to fire their keyboard player, right? Because because he felt that Pink Floyd should go in a more vocally driven direction. Why? Well, because yeah, actually, he was the new vocalist and he was going to do all of it. That was kind of what was going so, on. So yeah, well. Actually, um, so it came down to, and David Gilmore admitted this on, on camera, um, at the time, uh, oh, crap, keyboard player's name. Um, anyway. Right. 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 Richard Wright. At the time, Rick Wright was not being a productive member of Pink Floyd. But he was going through a lot of personal issues at the time. It, there was including- that, and, and he was he was so. If if you've read any of the Rick Wright stuff, he says part of it was his personal issues. The other part yeah. of it, he was not in love with what they were doing on the wall. Right, right. So he he was going through a bitter divorce. Um, there was alcohol. There was dr- there was drugs, and he um, admitted that he didn't like the album. He didn't and. Gilmore even said, you know, what the heck is Vera and bring the boys back home? What the, what was all that about? And um, I mean, if you if you listen to the wall the way it's intended to be listened to, which is one big, long song, it kind of works. You know, but I can understand where like the trial 
what what the hell was that all about when you're a rock band, right? I I sort um, of I sort of feel like um the wall is one of these records that it's revered because of the time period it came out in and the people were all like they were ready for that sort of thing. And right. then and then Neat. like my, honestly my generation, I think we're big much bigger fans of Dark Side of the Moon. Um yeah. and some of the earlier stuff that came before that than like Animals, for example. Animals um, is a perfect album for now, by the way. Then Walls People, if you're looking later. for an album that talks about now, go listen to Animals. Yeah. But go ahead. Sorry. Um after the after the wall, like I don't think my generation even the wall, like for a lot of my generation is not as revered. Um Yeah, we're where it worked perfectly for somebody like me. But I can remember the interview with with uh, David Gilmore seeing that where he says basically like there was a time period in, in Pink Floyd's history where we were not as concerned with the music side of things and those record, records were weaker and that he felt that they weren't as concerned with the music on the wall and that they were more concerned with how the lyrics turned out and the lyrical content and he said that's not to say that there aren't great songs on there but it, but that it was it was it was certainly more pompous than David Gilmore would have liked. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot of things that were removed. If you watch the movie or get the um, the extended version of it, there were lyrics that were printed. I, I remember getting the lyrics um, printed on the sleeves. Yeah, and they, going, chopped, they chopped out. Where the hell is this song? Or, you know, like when the Tigers broke free was not on the wall. Um, it was released later, uh, but I'm not on that. And uh, it was all because it had to fit on perfectly on four sides of vinyl. That was a huge, huge um, uh, chance they took to put out a double length album. Well, I think for uh, them given... that was, I, for them, I think that was actually the next logical step. Yeah. Like it would, but... it would for any other band, it would have been a huge, a uh, huge risk. Um, but for, I think for them, that was like, no, we're going to do a double album, but we just got to figure out, you know, how we're going to do it. And I think, I think, for whatever reason, I think Roger Waters was he had he had a um a way to get control of it, and I think he did. Yep. And I think it's haunted the it. band. I think the wall is, and and you're gonna you might crucify me for this, but I think the wall is actually the record that broke Pink Floyd. Yeah. Oh yeah. They they broke from everything. They broke from their normal production. Um, they went to uh, uh, Bob Ezrin, who at the time was famous for Kiss. Yeah, he had done uh, stuff with them. Well, they, um, just he had done big, stuff. they just wanted to go big budget. Um, they went with Gerald Scarf on the on the album uh, instead of Storm Thurgison, who had done all the other album art. Um, it was a uh, it was planned to be a movie, a um, album, excuse me, and a and a tour, and the whole thing had been planned out. This was all Roger's baby, and because of that. It really broke it up, which which leads us to today. So now here Rogers Waters is. He's been putting out all these old covers of his old stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of it on on uh Yeah, of course. YouTube, but I have. And and one of the things that that, that Gilmore talks about it, back talked about back then and talks about now is Waters can't sing in tune to save his life. He doesn't have any timing. He's not. Um, he's a bad karaoke version of himself. And I'm not talking about just the fact that he's old. 
It was the same back then. He has an ego. Uh He really does. He thinks he's better than he is. And, and I've, I mean, I've worked with people over the years and met people over the years that definitely have those problems too. Um, And they're kind of comical, but it's rare to see one that got that far before he removed himself. And now I am the champion of everything. And it just kind of makes him look silly. And I think that's why what I said, did you see what Gilmore did with his daughter? I think that's, I think that's part of the timing of the release is that Gilmore's like, oh yeah, we're still doing stuff. And because uh, Waters had mentioned that Polly, his wife, was in the, you know, had been mentioned on the Pink Floyd site, he made sure Polly and his daughter were heavily shown in the video for his new song to say, ha, you, I'm doing this. And I'm not hiring a bunch of musicians to come in and background singers. I'm just doing this with my daughter and my wife. And you kiss my my big rump. <laughs> but you know what's you know what's crazy though? So this is this yeah. is the thing that bother, that that boggled my mind. Um and but it does totally suit the philosophy, and then we'll we'll end on this, I guess. Um David Gilmore, the 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 record that he put out on an island. That's yep. not written by him. No. Well, the lyrics aren't. No, that well, and the music is sort of written by him because they talked about how in some of the stuff, like the the stuff where the the vocals are there, like the chords were already written, and then some of the music was like straight, just here's the chord changes. Somebody had already written the chord changes for him, and then they sat down with the band, they arranged it, um, which there's obviously skill in that, but it's just kind of funny to me that somebody who is that like about the music of it didn't write the music on it like not all of it you know what i mean um that that he was really like he was assisted and some of it was his wife actually which i i find shocking too but his wife has been writing lyrics for them since uh momentary absent reason she was uncredited because he felt that fans would reject it so he did not credit her early on um, on momentary lapse of reason and division bell. Uh, honestly, I'm kind of shocked they even have vocals anymore. Um, yeah. I can listen to that music without vocals till I'm blue in the face. So, yeah, and I think that that's where he writes. So he he and Polly talked about um, uh, their writing process together, and what he does is he records music, and then she walks around with the music for a while. And then comes up with lyrics. That's how she does it. Yeah. And then um, it's kind of reverse of what Elton John did with Bernie Toppin stuff. Toppin would send him stuff, and then Elton would create music around Bernie's lyrics. Um, I it's a, I do like the fact that on an island, which was clearly a Pink Floyd record, right? Love uh, it. It was not a Pink Floyd record in that it was released yeah. under the David Gilmore banner. And I kind of feel like that's the way they should play it. Um, I know they had that other Pink Floyd record that was like a holdover or something that came out recently. Um, like years I ago. have it. Yeah, I, I um, mean, it was okay. Uh, I, I like just, On an Island better. I just, I'm just like, there should have been a, a cut. And maybe maybe Momentary Lapse was like the last Pink Floyd record and everything else should just be David Gilmore from this point on. Um, now Rick Wright's gone, so, you know. He wants to get Nick Mason to come out and play drums for him. Like, that's one thing. But um, 
really, I think the interesting part about that was when I first heard that record, I didn't realize it was actually David Gilmour. Um, and I was driving down the road, and I was like, wow, this band's really ripping off Pink Floyd. Um, yeah. And then, it kind of, then, of course, I found out it was David Gilmour, and I was like, oh, okay. So I heard, first heard the vocals, and I was like, oh, all right. That's, that's obviously David Gilmour. Um, and I didn't like the single, but the rest of the record's great, and I actually like the single in context. Um, and I really feel like I wish he would do more stuff. Um, he's done one record since I do live albums, right? Um, and I just, yeah, I have it all. I just kind of wish that we would get more of more David Gilmore material. Uh, Roger Waters can just go away, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I have not really liked anything he's done. I think his music is pompous, and yep. I find his lyrics to be like. Um, self-righteous. For someone who is, um, he is a self-proclaimed communist socialist. And rich. Communist and rich. And, and that's what he said, and rich. And yet always looking to make another buck and worried about where he's getting his next buck. That's where even he's like incapable. I don't think he's capable of coming in touch with his true being. And I think that's what hurts him the most. Um, he lives a hip- he, he really... lives a hypocritical life. Yeah. Um, whether he, he sees it as hypocritical, hypocrisy. whether he sees it as hypocritical is another thing. But he definitely yeah. leads a hypocritical life. Yeah. I have been David. I've been Jim. And tonight we have been practical guitarists. <laughs>